0: Thanks, Timothy. Uh, Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, Good to hear a few more Duke people in the house. It was a strictly Carolina crowd earlier this morning. They didn't heckle me, but they might have been close to it. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, as Timothy said, I am the RUF campus minister at Duke. Uh, If you don't know what RUF is, I'd love to tell you. Uh, It's been a part of my life for close to two decades now. Uh, There are actually four RUF interns in our first service. These are recent college grads sent out to proclaim the gospel on college campuses. Uh, This coming week and the next few weeks for college ministry in general are just Big time, so be praying for people who are doing college ministry in our midst uh, and would love to get to know you, even if you're not interested in RUF, would love to get to know you at some point uh, as well. So this morning, I'm going to be continuing the series that Christ Central has been doing through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 and 10 through 17. This, uh, if you are familiar with church or scripture, this is going to be a fairly familiar story to you, the feeding of the 5,000, and we'll see what God has for us as we hear from his word. So again, starting in verse 1, we'll read 1 and 2 and 10 through 17. So I invite you to stand if you're able uh, as the practice here, as we hear from God's word. This is Luke 9, starting in verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. He's given it to us because he loves us. Uh, Would you join with me as we pray for it? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us here this morning. Lord, I don't know where you have called people from, perhaps a place of encouragement and excitement, uh, a place of discouragement. There may be people here who are wondering why they're in a church. Uh, And God, I pray that wherever we might be coming from, that you would speak, uh, that you would speak through your word. And as we hear from you, that you would take these imperfect words that are going to come from me and you would communicate perfect truth to your people. I pray that as a result of what we hear from you in your word, we would be different people uh, than we are when we walked in this morning. We need you to do that. We need your spirit to be at work. So Holy Spirit, be at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to have a seat. When I was in college, I spent one summer doing youth ministry at a very large church in the Atlanta area. And as far as I could tell, this church had had tremendous reach and impact. It was the largest church I had ever been a part of. And so it was hard to imagine that there was a time when this church didn't exist. And so I was curious to go to this dinner that was designed to tell the story about how the church came to be. And I remember vividly the pastor of the church saying that he began the church after being challenged by someone to attempt to do something so impossible that it was doomed to fail unless God was in it. Attempt to do something so impossible that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. The point being that the hope for the church as it began is that people would look at it later on and see something so amazing that it was impossible to give credit to a person for it, that it would clearly be a God thing. Now, I remember being struck by this not so much because it seemed like that happened in this particular church, as cool as that was, but what was striking about this call to do something so impossible that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it is that is not just a call for people trying to start big churches or big ministries or nonprofits or things like that. It's a good way to think about what every follower of Jesus is called to, to do something so impossible it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. And if that's true, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, then in order to accomplish that, we need a power that comes from outside of us, something that we don't bring to the table. We need the power of Jesus to accomplish it. And as we look at this story of Jesus tasking his disciples to do something that was impossible for them, we see that the power of Jesus ultimately comes from his presence, So I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about the call of Jesus that he places on all those who would follow him. I want to talk about the power of Jesus that he gives to his followers to accomplish that call. And I want to talk about the presence of Jesus, where that power comes from. The call, the power, the presence, if you're an outline person. We see right off the bat in verse 1 that Jesus is calling his disciples together. Think of this as he's calling a team meeting. They're going to set their objectives and their goals. This is going to be the mission statement of what it means to be on Jesus' team. So we get a glimpse here of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be part of the church. Now, I want to say this, that it's important to note that we are unlike these 12 disciples in some ways. We are like them in other ways. We're unlike them in that they had a special call. They were especially empowered by Jesus to start the church. They were given authority to communicate his message to the rest of the church. That's how we have the Gospel of Luke and the rest of the New Testament in the first place. It says in verse 1 that they were given power. And that word there means miraculous power. They were given Jesus' power to heal diseases and cast out demons. I've been part of the church for a little while now and I've never met anybody who has that kind of power regularly at their disposal. They are unlike us in some way, and they have a call that is unlike ours. But in other ways, they're just like us. They're a group of 12 ordinary guys. They're a random sampling of the people from the area. You've got some fishermen, you've got a radical revolutionary, you've got a tax collector, some other guys. You could pull 12 people from here as ordinary people, and you could set them on the same task. And Jesus says that he sends them out. They are sent Later on in verse 10, they're called apostles. That word just means that they are sent people. The same verb form in verse 2 for them to be sent. They're big A apostles. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you too are sent. It's what it means to follow Jesus. And he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal diseases. If you are a follower of Jesus, the call for you is a call of kingdom proclamation. He calls his people together together to proclaim the kingdom truth. And so if that's the call, the question might come, well, what exactly does that mean and what does that look like? What does it mean to live a life of kingdom proclamation? I'm so glad you asked because we're going to talk about it right now. The first thing it means is that if we're proclaiming the kingdom of God, we are not proclaiming the kingdom of us. If we are proclaiming the kingdom of God, it is an acknowledgement that Jesus is the one who has authority over our lives. He is the controller of our destiny. He gets to send us where he wants, when he wants. How does that sit with you? The first part of answering the call to proclaim the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that Jesus' authority means that he can send you, and then actually answering that call we didn't read it in verse 6, but the disciples actually depart from the place they're in. They go into the villages proclaiming the gospel of God and healing diseases. They answer the call Have you, if you are a Christian here this morning, a follower of Jesus, have you made your life about kingdom proclamation? If you're not a Christian, you're wondering what you're talking about, I would suggest to you that there is no more meaningful or ambitious thing you can take part of in this world than to proclaim the kingdom of God. And that's because it's this amazing, beautiful, all-encompassing thing. First of all, to proclaim the kingdom of God means we actually have to use our words. Proclamation means to announce publicly and extensively. Oftentimes, Christians, myself included, really love that quote from St. Francis of Assisi. I don't know if you know the quote, but it's preach the gospel at all times, everywhere, and if necessary, use words. I think we like that quote not so much because it compels us to live this radical life of gospel love in our actions, but because it makes us feel better about the fact that we don't really like to talk about Jesus. We don't like to tell people that their only hope for life is to trust fully in a Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago. And oh, by the way, he rose from the dead too, and that part's really important. I remember leading a Bible study for freshmen one time, and the question we were asking in the Bible study is, how can we engage in evangelism on campus? And the first person raised his hand and said, well, we can be kind to the people in the dining hall that serve us food. Which a great answer might show sensitivity to people that are often overlooked. But then the conversation stopped there. Nobody came up with the idea of we could talk to our friends and roommates and classmates about Jesus and our faith in him. I get it, by the way. I can squirm when I think about people out there in the world asking me what I do for a living. Even though I have the easiest segue to talk about Jesus of anybody. We have to use our words to proclaim the kingdom, use our words to proclaim Jesus's kingship over us and all things in order to live lives of kingdom proclamation. But that's not to say that our actions aren't important. There is a strong connection between what we say and what we do. And this is Jesus's life demonstrated to us, that he backs up what he says. It doesn't matter if you describe yourself as a compassionate savior, if you don't demonstrate compassion and you don't save. But Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, he says, "'Blessed are all those who are hungry, for they shall be satisfied.'" And as this story goes, he feeds a hungry crowd of over 5,000 people until, as it says in verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. Later on, after this, in chapter 9, he says the Son of Man must suffer and die in order to rescue the people. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke is about how Jesus went to suffer and die. He's a man who backs up what he says with what he does. And we are called to do the same thing. If we are called to proclaim a compassionate servant king who gives his life as a ransom for many, we need to demonstrate that we serve that king by giving our lives as well. And so we see what Jesus does here is he commands his disciples to heal diseases, to feed hungry people. A savior, a a God who has taken a physical body, cares about meeting physical needs. He gives them authority over the demons, which suggests that he too cares about spiritual needs and mental and emotional needs. I imagine as the disciples are sent out, they meet all sorts of individuals and they meet their individual needs. He calls them to meet the needs of a crowd, communal, dare I say systemic needs, that present themselves in front of his people. This is an all-encompassing kingdom reality. Jesus has come to eliminate sickness, to get rid of sadness, to abolish injustice, to do away with sin and death. He's come to usher in a kingdom of health and joy and righteousness and justice and abundant life where all would bow the knee to him. Talk about an ambitious plan. And one thing that needs to be said if you look at this story is that the needs that the kingdom addresses, they don't take vacation days. Jesus and his disciples, they try to get away. They go out for a private retreat after the disciples come back, verses 10 and 11, but the crowd figures it out and they follow them. In Mark's account, it says the disciples were taken away so that they could rest, not work to feed a hungry crowd of 5,000 people. But the needs of the kingdom don't have off days. I'm struck by how rarely I think about trying to talk about Jesus and meet the needs of others when I'm on vacation. But the kingdom of God doesn't ask to fit into our schedule. It asks to blow up our schedule. The most amazing thing about this passage to me is not the miracle that Jesus does, as amazing as that is, but that Jesus' plan A for the kingdom to come is to use us. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he's training his disciples to be his hands and feet to bring the kingdom to fruition. And if we think that we can do that on our own, we're as crazy as thinking that 12 ordinary guys can feed a crowd of over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. This is a task that is so impossible for us, it is doomed to fail unless God is in it. But the challenge for us oftentimes when we think about what he's called us to is we look at ourselves and not him, and we get overwhelmed. It's easier for us to remain in comfortable lives on the sidelines instead of entering all the way in to what he's called us to. I think oftentimes the church can be like the little kids who are afraid to play basketball with the big kids, forgetting that we have LeBron on our team. We have the power of Jesus going with us, not just his call. We forget in the midst of this overwhelming call that he actually has empowered us. But if you are overwhelmed by what he's called you to, you might actually be understanding what that call actually is. That's not the problem. The problem is staying in that overwhelmed place, forgetting that we have Jesus with us. We don't just have the call of Jesus, we have the power of Jesus too. It says it right off the bat there in verse 1, that he gave the disciples power and authority to heal diseases and cast out demons. It's amazing, before he sent them to do something they clearly couldn't do, he gave them the power to do it. And the passage suggests that they must have seen some pretty cool things happen when they did it. I mean, after all, they come back in verse 10 and they're telling Jesus all that they had seen and done. I think they're kind of like our kids that are going to come out of children's church showing us their crafts that they did because they're so excited. They can't wait to tell Jesus what they've accomplished. They've seen him do amazing things through them by his power. But they come to a desolate place. That word could also be translated wilderness. And they come up against something that seems too big and overwhelming for them. A hungry crowd of 5,000 people, more than 5,000 people, And Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. That's not a suggestion. It's not a joke. It's a command. You give them something to eat. And they're overwhelmed by it. I'm convinced that many people who are Christians actually want to engage in kingdom work want to share their faith in a compelling way, to care about justice issues, to serve the poor, but sometimes the task just seems so great that we don't know where to begin. The disciples care about the crowd. They tell Jesus to send them away because they need food. They just don't know how to meet those needs themselves. The task seems too big, and they're overwhelmed by it. It makes me think of another wilderness situation. In fact, I think we're supposed to think about this situation as we read the text, where the people of God have just seen a couple of guys do some pretty amazing things. They've seen Moses and Aaron, through the power of God, essentially wipe out the Egyptian empire to bring the people of God out of slavery. They've seen Moses take a stick and put it in the ground and a sea part in two directions so they can walk across it on dry land. They have seen some amazing things and they come to the wilderness without food and they freak out. They start complaining. They don't know what to do. But the most important thing about that part of the story is that it is God who led them into the wilderness. It is Jesus who led his disciples to this situation that was too big for them. And he did that because he loves them. He led them into the wilderness to a task that was impossible for them to expose them for their need of Jesus. We can think about just trying to live a faithful Christian life in this world, trying to be a faithful child, a faithful parent, a faithful student, a faithful employee, a faithful neighbor, And we can think about how the world in many ways is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and we can just feel overwhelmed when we look at ourselves. You want me to go out and meet the physical needs of my neighbors? I can barely keep my own house clean or get all my homework done or keep my kids alive. You want me to go share my faith in a way so that people who don't know Jesus will believe in this Jewish carpenter who died? I'm not even sure I always believe it myself. You want me to feed a hungry crowd of 5,000 people with, 12 lo- with five loaves of bread and two fish. But the disciples have forgotten that the one who is commanding them to do that just raised a girl from the dead. They forgot that they have been seeing Jesus do miraculous things their whole time with them. They forgot we are forgetters, that God is a God of power and a God of provision. One of the key themes of my 2021 coming off the 2020 pandemic was a mold situation in our rental house. It was a disaster. And we had to find somewhere else to live. And we were on our knees praying that God would provide us a house in our same neighborhood because it was close to Duke and we thought it was helpful for ministry. And I thought that God could do that but I certainly didn't think he would. And then when he provided the house, I was surprised. But why? Every other time I've needed somewhere to live, God has provided. God has done so many things to show his faithfulness to me. And you have experienced that if you are a Christian, God's showing up in your life in powerful ways. And yet we come across a task that's too big for us, and we forget all about it. Jesus brings us to these situations so that he can expose us as forgetters. But he also brings us to these situations so he can show us how he provides. The people of God were brought in to the wilderness so that God could rain down bread from heaven on them. The people here are brought to this situation that is too big for them so that they could see Jesus feed a hungry crowd of 5,000 people. But here's what's so amazing about what Jesus does. He doesn't shame the disciples. He doesn't embarrass them. He doesn't point out that you guys don't have what it takes. He actually uses what they have. He takes their pathetic five loaves of bread and two fish and he multiplies it. He takes what they bring to the table and he makes it powerful and effective to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And what's more, he goes, I know you can't feed a hungry crowd of 5,000 people, but I bet you can count to 50 and put people in groups. You probably can hand out bread that I give to you. He gives them tasks that they can actually accomplish, and he makes those powerful and effective for his kingdom purposes. You cannot make your friend or family member come to faith in Jesus, but you can pray for them. And you can talk about what Jesus has done in your life. You can be respectful of them and ask questions. Jesus can use that. You can't end racism in this community. But you can befriend somebody who looks different than you. And you can try to understand their reality. And you can stand with them in the unity that we have in Christ. Jesus can use that. You can't end suffering for somebody. But you can sit with them. You can bring them a meal. You can pray with them. You can cry with them. Jesus can use that. We should be overwhelmed in a sense by the task of kingdom proclamation, except when we remember that it is Jesus' job to bring that kingdom into fruition. He just gets to use our ordinary actions and words in a powerful way to begin to make that happen more and more. So yourself, what is it that you can do that is an ordinary act of love for a neighbor that Jesus can turn into something extraordinary? His power shines through our actions and our words, no matter how eloquent or big or amazing they are. And it's ultimately that Jesus's power comes to us through his presence He has called us to something so impossible that it is doomed to fail unless he is in it. But he is in it and has given us his power. And that power comes to us through his consistent and persistent and welcoming presence for us. I'm going to get a little bit grammar nerdy for a second here on the text. So if that's not your thing, just hang with me. It's an important point. But I want you to look at verse 16. Verse 16 is when Jesus takes the loaves of bread... And it says, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves. Those three verbs, to look up, to say a blessing, to break loaves, those are in a tense that conveys a one-time action. He, took, he, he said one prayer. He looked up once. He broke it once. But then when it says he gave the bread to the disciples, it's in a different tense. And that tense conveys continuous action. And so you could better translate this by saying he kept giving the bread to the disciples. Which means that when they ran out of what they had, they had to go back to his presence in order to get more. When they had come to the end of what he had empowered them to do, they needed to recharge in his presence. I've done the YMCA pool a lot this summer with my kids. It's been awesome in the, in the heat. But I've noticed my five-year-old, he's this developing swimmer, and it's a little bit scary to still kind of send him out into the deep end. You can kind of do it a little bit. But I've watched him. When he's in a part of the pool that's too deep for him, he will venture out a little bit, and then he will come back to me to hang on to me. He will rest before he sends himself back out onto the dangerous waters. He's being strengthened by my presence. Isn't it awesome how kids are such a beautiful picture of what it means to follow Jesus? As we get sent out into this dangerous world to proclaim the kingdom, we need to return to the presence of Jesus to be strengthened in order for that task. And he invites us to come back again and again and again. Did you notice that when the crowd comes to him, even though they come at a time that kind of blows up the plans for this retreat with his disciples, look at how it says in verse 11, Jesus received them. It says he welcomed them. He received them gladly. Here is the truth about Jesus's presence. When you come to him in your need, he will always welcome you. In fact, that is the ultimate requirement to come to him, recognizing your need and then receiving his welcome. And there's perhaps no better picture of this regular returning to Jesus' welcoming presence than what we are about to do after this service in the Lord's Supper. The themes of that are all over this feeding of the 5,000. There's another place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus takes bread and breaks it and gives it to his disciples. And at that place, the Lord's Supper, he says, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Take this cup, it is my blood shed for you. I have come to provide my own life abundantly for you overwhelmed, forgetful people. This points back to when God rained down bread from heaven in abundant provision for his people, and it looks forward to when Jesus provides his very life for those who would constantly forget about him and remain on the sidelines. We return to this again and again so that we can remember just how far Jesus was willing to go to secure his presence with us. When we come to faith in Jesus we one time receive the righteousness that he has given so freely to us. He died once in a one-time action. But the life of following Jesus is not to graduate from our need for him, but to return to him again and again and again to remember what he has done, to see the model for what it looks like for our lives as we are sent out to answer his call. So if you are put in a situation that overwhelms you, if you have a call that seems too impossible for you to do, you are invited to remember this story. And this story is an invitation to respond to the call of Jesus, to respond to proclaiming his kingdom and all its amazing beauty and glory. And as you go and respond, you are reminded You are called to remember that you have his power with you as you go, to take our ordinary actions and activities in our ordinary spheres of life and do something extraordinary with them. And we are called to return to his presence again and again and again. And when we do, we will always find a presence that is welcoming. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us such a glorious purpose to declare your kingdom reality, to participate in this amazing work that you are doing. But we recognize that this is doomed to fail unless you are in it, so we praise you and thank you that you are. We thank you for the power of Jesus that you bestow upon us as you use your Holy Spirit to take ordinary actions and activities and do extraordinary things. And God, I pray that we, as we grow in our faith, would not think that we need you less, but recognize that we need you more and be quicker and quicker to return to your welcoming presence, to receive forgiveness and righteousness and encouragement and rest and the spirit of power to go out into this world. God, we thank you and we praise you for your word and I pray that you would sink it more deeply into our hearts that we would be changed by it. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.